catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. Reindorse is the co-founder of the Flow Research Collective, where he teaches people to reliably enter the flow state for higher performance in life's most high-pressure situations. He also owns several other businesses, including Sam Uppins' Consulting.com, which he purchased from Sam earlier this year. We chat about developing rock-solid intuition, the most important leadership lessons for eight-figure businesses, and Rian's incredible story of overcoming a traumatic brain injury as a teenager. Rian is so sharp, and I really love this conversation, so I hope you do too. Welcome, everybody. Rian, I'm fucking stoked to chat with you. I wish we had more time, but we will get in as much as we can today. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. yeah so to be here, boss. Things that I wanted to touch on, uh, just for the audience, you in your 27 years have squeezed so much life in. Like meeting you was incredibly impressive. The obstacles you've overcome, the things that you've built, I only have a small idea of them. So for context, help me catch back up and the audience. Uh, let's start with what you've built business-wise. You've got a ton of things. You've bought other people businesses. What's going on right now? Yeah, I appreciate, I appreciate the kind words, first of all. Uh, the first big move after lots of fun little sort of side hustles and things mm -hmm. like that that I had, which I, maybe I'll touch on quickly. When I was eight, I started buying PlayStations on eBay. PlayStation 3s, I think it was at the time. And then I found out you could sell them in the local paper at a slight markup. <laughs> it was a nice, in, in Ireland in the middle of nowhere where they didn't know eBay was a thing yet. Yeah. So that was nice. So I did like some little hustles like that. I, I used to buy and, and fix up surfboards and I had a few different random businesses as well in my teens. I had a uh, network marketing business, multi-level marketing, oh, sell, boy. selling aloe vera in college. It's a terrible way to get a horrendous reputation on campus and some website selling businesses and, and kind of like bits and pieces basically. And then I started um, interning with Stephen Kotler, and I can talk maybe about the, the head injury after because that was how I got into his work. Mm -hmm. uh, he's a New York Times bestselling author and expert on flow state. We worked together for about two and a half years with me managing his brand from age 19 to 21 while I was still in college. How did you get that gig? Because that, I think, people, me especially, in terms of mentors, I haven't been fantastic about connecting with real-life mentors. Yeah. I've only had authors that have taught me through their work. Indirectly. How did you get him to trust you with that? It started with a Facebook message, funnily enough. Mm -hmm. I had listened to him on a podcast two years prior, and I just had this habit of adding anyone I thought was impressive as a friend on Facebook, if I could find their personal Facebook profile, okay. distinct from the fan page. And then two years later, I'd actually kind of forgotten who he was, funnily enough. I just knew that he was one of the cool guys that I'd listened to on a podcast and read books of, but I wasn't like 100% clear on him. And he posted uh, looking for an intern. Mm. And then I just sent him a Facebook message, love your stuff, big fan, read all the stuff. I remembered obviously fully who he was afterwards. And he sent me this hilarious long trial task to find everything he'd ever written on the internet. He's been, Stephen's like uh, America's most widely published journalist, funnily enough, which is a random stat about Stephen. He's been published in more publications than any journalist. Oh my goodness. So I had to scroll the whole, um, scroll the whole internet and try and, uh, and try and find all the different things he'd written, categorize them into a big spreadsheet and send it back to him. It took me like 
weeks and weeks and he was shocked that I actually did it. No one else did. <laughs> so he was impressed by that. He gave me another discovery project or trial project, which was to do almost the equivalent of a doctoral level um, meta-analysis on the history of intuition, funnily enough, mm. and thinkers on intuition. And I spent about a month and a half doing that and then sent that back to him, actually did it. And at that point he was like, okay, I'm getting on a call with this kid. This kid means means some business. He's doing wow. this much free labor for me, and from there we we built a relationship. And you know, I just took the I just took the mindset of adding as much value to him as I possibly possibly could, with ask, while asking for nothing in return, no comp, no you know, no nothing, and it paid off extremely well. That's incredible. Uh, I want to hear about the rest of the story, but I'm right now in my life. I'm super interested in intuition. And I've, mm. I've seen some of the different histories of it, the genius, the diamond, like all of these guardian angel type things that come in. I'm curious, not of the history of it, but if any of what you read and what you've understood, how, how you feel about intuition, what is your understanding of it? Yeah, it's a really, it's, it's, I was actually thinking and talking with someone on my team about this topic yesterday, funnily uh -huh. enough. So there's a really interesting phenomenon called exformation. Mm -hmm. And exformation is all the information that we don't consciously absorb but that we do absorb at a subconscious or unconscious level. So let's say, for example, you're walking through a crowd in a busy street on Third Street Promenade in, in Santa Monica. Mm -hmm. You're not aware that, you know, the fourth person to your right had a really severe frown on their face, mm -hmm. but you do actually absorb that information at some level as exformation. It's just not conscious. And so it gets consciously discarded, yet unconsciously absorbed and integrated. And the way I think about intuition is that intuition is the signal that gets served up usually through some kind of a sense or a gut instinct from the synthesis of all that exformation mm -hmm. that happens outside of conscious awareness. Mm. Um, now that's, there's lots of different uh, ways to classify and describe intuition, but that's, that's kind of my model for it, I yeah. suppose. I, I, that, that definitely works because one of the things that I realized is that I have discarded my intuitions when I couldn't explain them. Mm -hmm. And if you even look at my, my channel, it's like if I can't explain the micro expression that someone does that makes you like them, I, I get anxious. Like I need to be able to pin a specific explanation for why I feel a certain way. And so there's been times where I've discarded my intuition because I can't, I can't hook it into mm. a specific thing. And in learning not to do that, I find I'm making better decisions because I'm trusting this part of myself yep. that is in taking way more exformation than yep. I've accounted for. Yep, yep. David Eagleman, um, he's a Stanford neuroscientist, has a great analogy for this, which is that the headline of the newspaper mm -hmm. is what our conscious mind processes. Every word in the entire rest of the newspaper is the equivalent to what the unconscious can process. So it processes way more total information. Mm. And so if you have to tie every intuitive signal that you get from your unconscious to something consciously, to your point, you'll end up discarding a lot of mm -hmm. it, even though a lot of it's very potent signal. But it, it takes a while, I think, to kind of build up the ability to know what gut instinct to trust or what intuition to trust and to disseminate it from other impulses like, I don't know, the desire to you know, seek safety yep. or avoid something because it's fearful or whatever it is. You know, you yeah. kind of parse out those nuanced feelings. So. Yeah, huge topic. We can, another day. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a tangent. <laughs> yeah. So you, you start working with Stephen and now you're into this realm of flow is is the yep. main topic that he's talking about and that you're working on with him once yeah. you get started. Yeah, so Stephen, Stephen wrote a great book. It was the first book of his that I read called Rise of Superman. Mm -hmm. And it was about him working as a journalist, following action and adventure sports athletes all around the world, 
chasing them through mountains. He even followed Dean Potter, who was an amazing wingsuiter, through the sky. Shane wow. McConkie, who was an extreme skier. Um, Laird Hamilton, he followed and wrote you know articles with, who, who lives down the road here in Malibu, the big wave surfer. And he found, Stephen found, that all of these athletes were progressing in action sports faster, way, way, way faster than other sports were progressing. So for example, skiing or surfing was progressing far faster than tennis or rugby was. And he realized it was because these sports give rise to flow state more acutely and, mm. and fully than other sports. And so he became fascinated with the phenomenon of flow, dove deep into the neuroscience and the research on flow state, flow being that optimal state of consciousness where you're totally absorbed in an activity, fully mm -hmm. in the zone, immersed in what you're doing. Your sense of self goes offline, your inner monologue, time, you know, speeds, uh, speeds up and, and passes strangely. And so Stephen dove deep into the research on flow, of which there's a surprising amount, and started teaching the neuroscience around flow based on what he had learned with these action sports athletes and giving keynotes. And I was working with him, you know, doing keynotes all over the world. And uh, he opened up, funnily enough, for Obama, believe it or not, um, in uh, Helsinki in front of 7,500 CEOs, gave his usual breakdown on the neuroscience of flow. And Stephen and I got swarmed by the executives afterwards saying, mm -hmm. you know, we need this in the workplace. You got to teach our teams how to access this state. They're burnt out and fried. And that was when we decided to build Flow Research Collective, which has been, you know, my main focus and, and what I've poured my heart and soul into over the last four and a half years since we started that. And it was an amazing opportunity for me. I was, I was 22. Wow. Stephen's 30 years older than me. Um, and uh, I remember actually Stephen called me up. I was in Ireland at the time and he said, hey, Hey kid, I think you might have even said <laughs> this is one of those moments in your life where yeah. you get where you get a layup, you get a fat pitch, you better you better nail this one. Mm. And I remember internalizing that and thinking, okay, I gotta. This is one of those opportunities I gotta really milk. And uh, yeah, it's worked out very well. We built the business to a pretty decent size. And can we can we get into some of the numbers yeah, for yeah. the FRC? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, we got to um, we bootstrapped the company with no outside capital which was uh, hugely helped by Steven's brand, of course. Uh, and then another big advantage to that or thing that enabled that was uh, very gr aggressive, um, I don't want to say aggressive sales. We don't have an aggressive sales style, but a huge amount of effort put mm -hmm. into sales. I had had the background in uh, these weird sales jobs like multi-level marketing. I used to sell as well charity subscriptions on oh, the street okay. and alarms door to door. So, I so you're used to selling of, stuff that people don't want. I, oh, and now you've got people coming up want. to you after a keynote and they're like, we yeah. want this in the workplace. Exactly. So you got a product that can move. And, exactly. and this is training to help corporate teams access flow and improve the productivity, that yep. sort of thing. Okay. Yep, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, tra it's professional and leadership development training that helps people learn how to access flow states mm -hmm. as a skill so they can get into the zone reliably rather than it being this kind of sporadic, elusive state mm -hmm. that, they sometimes get into and massively sure. improves their performance, but that's difficult to access. So a big part of us being able to grow really, really quickly was obviously Steven's brand that was huge. And then me doing a tremendous number of sales calls. I did about 2000 sales calls in the first year. And the benefit of that was really deeply learning the inside of the customer psyche and just having a really, really nuanced understanding of exactly what their problems were, how they conceived of their problems, how they needed to be interacted with 
in a way that would allow them to know that we deeply understood their problems and could thus help them. And so th that kind of very tight product market fit that came out of doing such a high volume sales calls, plus the emphasis on sales, plus Steven's brand, allowed us to scale to <coughs> eight figures in under 24 months, which was great mm. with no outside capital at all. Wow. Uh, with me as like a 20, 22, 23 year old oh figuring it all out as I went, so. How, <laughs> so you, this is the piece of this that is incredible. Is you were this rigorous from 19 years old, at least when Stephen gave you the task of tracking down everything on the internet. <clears throat> do you have? Do you know why? I know you've only been you in this lifetime, but that is incredibly unique. I don't feel that. <laughs> I would not do 2,000 sales calls. <laughs> I was much more four-hour work week. Like, let's do a little bit of work every day. And make <laughs> yeah. sure that we enjoy it. Do you know where that that drive and that rigor comes from? I, yeah, it's a good question. You know, I think um, it probably, it started for me definitely with the head injury, which I'll, maybe mm -hmm. I'll share that story because that kind of tees up, I think, the answer to this question. So when I was 13, I was on holidays with my, my parents and family in Croatia. Before Croatia was in the EU, it was kind of still, there was still like elements of the Soviet bloc there. and was kind of run down in certain ways. And mm -hmm. I walked down this really long beach with my brother and my dad and found this kind of semi-abandoned water park Climbed up to the top of the tallest slide in the water park. It was one of those vertical drop oh, kind no. of slides. And there was like chipped wood and missing uh, steps on the way up as me and my brother were walking up, like 100 feet up. We went down it a few times fine. And then I had the smart idea to try and do a somersault off the bottom of the slide. On my third go round, I went down, semi-rotated, and just went head first into concrete in the bottom Oof. of the pool. The water was like three foot deep. Oof. So it was basically, you know, 100 foot vertical down and then bang. Uh, and I remember just, I remember the noise, actually. It felt like a bomb had gone off. I was still conscious. And I remember standing up, not knowing, you know, who or where I was and just hearing the reverberation and mm. then kind of vaguely opening my eyes and just seeing blood coming down over my eyes. And then my dad kind of pulling me in and consoling me and just saying, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. Oh, my God. Yeah. And then I got I got dragged away in, a, in an ambulance and I <clears throat> couldn't remember, you know, anything that was happening as it was happening mm. the, the usual classic stuff i didn't go unconscious because of where i was hit which is right there i still have a lump on the top of the head there um and uh it took me seven years to recover from which was the real bummer um for a year after i had very severe amnesia i couldn't remember the name of my close friends or favorite band and about two years three years into the recovery i started to have more mental health challenges which likely were physiologically induced from the actual accident but i think could also have just been part of the teenage you know aging process uh depression and anxiety and just pretty severe existential crises and nihilism and things like that um and around that time i started to for whatever reason develop a lot of drive mm. i remember finding this book Called by, by a guy called Matthew Syed called Blink. It's one of those books that talks about how talent is uh, not real and it's everything is skill-based. And there was something about that book. It just like, there was the moment when growth mindset mm -hmm. kind of emerged and I like understood the power of agency. And that, that created, that, that kind of compounded the drive. And from there, I just felt a really, really, really strong drive start to emerge from about 15. But before that, I was kind of a slacker in mm. school. I would, you know, do... A sort of a crappy job academically with my exams and things like that. So it was 15, 16, two, three years after the head injury, as the mental health stuff was becoming more challenging, that the drive started to 
And that drive, I imagine, helped ameliorate some of the mental health issues. Or no? I think so. Yeah, I think it was probably in part a coping mechanism um, to get through what were fairly dark, dark mm-hmm. mental times. But then I, I remember also having periods in Ireland where I felt very good, even around that time, and still had you know, as much drive, if not even more drive around that period. In Ireland, it uh, gets dark, you know, in the wintertime at like 4.30. Mm-hmm. And we get like 300 days of rainfall a year. It's extremely <laughs> cloudy. So you get seasonal affective disorder yeah. and decreased serotonin production. And for me, that SAD is what it's called, SAD. Yeah. For me, that would set in very, very strongly and consistently from about the 15th of November to the 15th of April, almost like clockwork. Mm. So during those years, during the winter in particularly, I would be very low and it would lift a little bit during the summer, but the drive was still present. So it wasn't just an escape from depression, I don't think. I think mm-hmm. it was, I think I think I um, developed just an appreciation maybe for life from the head injury and from being so close to losing it. And I think that, for me at least, the flip side of appreciation is this drive to squeeze all the juice out of the lemon and just like soak it all up you know if you haven't eaten a meal in a long time and you're not sure if you'll ever get to eat one again you just Mm. want to fucking devour the thing yeah you know so that's kind of what it felt like except with respect to life itself that explains how you've done so much you're 27 right 27 yeah yeah i mean and not just in your social life you've got a more active social calendar than (laughs) anybody so we can get all to all that stuff got it okay so you have, uh, today, you scaled the Flow of Research Collection to it's an eight-figure, that's annual revenue, I yep. imagine? Yep. Got it. And you're yep. doing different kinds of trainings. Yep. What, well, let's do your vision, and then I want to know all the stuff that you're learning just as a leader and that sort of things. But yeah. we'd, we've chatted about it this briefly. What, do, is there, do you close your eyes and like see something for Flow of Research Collective or your career or something that you want to make? Or is it to grow the thing that you have? What? Is there an aim in mind? Is I, I feel like the engine of this drive, and I'm curious about the steering wheel. Yeah, it's a, good, it's a great question. It's a nice way to frame it. It's funny, you know, over the years, I've actually become less and less bought into the idea of a big, grand master plan mm-hmm. and very specific sort of 30-year vision and have more and more adopted the approach that Charlie Munger, who's an amazing thinker, the partner of Warren Buffett, emphasizes which is to sort of play the field in front of you as well as you possibly can so as to maximize optionality mm-hmm. and to just keep doing that um and so even though i've become I've definitely become more driven and, and and probably harder working over the years i feel like less attachment to and even believe that there's less utility in having a very specific long term this is what i want to do in 30 years and instead try and sort of opportunity maximize with respect to everything that's in front of me, which is kind of a more like agile, adaptive approach. Mm-hmm. So that's that's kind of my philosophy on vision. Now I do have... What are the opportunities? Because you could maximize for any amount of opportunity, but some of them are going to be more appealing to you. So yeah. I'm curious if you if you notice a thread between like what the types of opportunities that you find compelling. I think that, you know, the broadest way to describe my vision or what I find compelling is improving the human experience from the inside out. Okay. It's a pithy, nice little mm-hmm. phrase I came up with for myself sure. to distill that down. You know, what that means is improving to the degree that I'm able people's experience of life and of mm-hmm. being a conscious being through focusing directly on that, meaning experience itself, mm-hmm. consciousness itself, 
rather than the contents of consciousness, like all the things on the outside in the external world that you know you may interact with or do or achieve or acquire. Mm. Um, and Flow Research Collective definitely focuses on that. I mean, the, the experience of flow is one of the most profoundly fulfilling experiences we can have. All of Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, who's the godfather of flow science, one of the co-founders of positive psychology and did all the original research on flow. He actually came across flow when setting out to answer the question, uh, what gives life meaning, funnily mm. enough. And, and the answer to that question led him to flow, which is interesting. So um, he, he surveyed a ton of different populations from Navajo sheep herders to factory workers to like motorbike gangs in Japan, as disparate as you could imagine, mm. asking them what makes life feel worthwhile, what makes you know, life feel good, what gives you meaning. And they kept describing flow state. Mm. funnily enough so anyway to get back to the point of the vision though you know it's i just yeah. I'm, you're making me realize that i have had when i hear flow i associate it with athletes and people obsessed with optimization and performance mm. and when you discuss what flow is mm-hmm. like that sense of oneness with the moment and things moving through you and the chatter dying down yeah it is a it is like deeply connecting with the essence of who you are in a yeah. way. And there are sometimes activities that can bring you into that and activities that make it more likely. But yeah, that to me, uh, I see the value of it. And of course, there's a productivity angle that, exactly. that a lot of the YouTube people want to yeah. get. And if they want that, you've actually asked not to chat about that today, which I'm totally cool <laughs> with. Go to Rian's channel if you want the contents of getting into flow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it's interesting that that's... It, no, it is. It's worth touching on for a moment. You know, I think one of the things that makes flow feel so meaningful is that you have a decreased sense of Mm self-consciousness when in flow you lose yourself you lose yourself in the moment you lose yourself in the wave if you're a surfer you lose yourself in the music if you're singing this was me going out to bars talking to girls i I swear that was that it was what i wanted was to was to hit that i've lost myself and it's just happening and words and jokes and vibe is just coming through me and then i would look back and be like i can't even remember what happened very well because the part of me that catalogs (laughs) was was turned off yeah yeah and and it feels blissful to have that turned off because you know if you think about mental health and maladaptive psychological issues usually the pain is caused by the self being in some way dysfunctional, you know, where it's you're creating these negative thoughts, you're mulling on things, you're ruminating on things, you're stuck in your head, and that mm. that inner monologue is often the source of the pain, the anxiety, mm-hmm. the depression. So to have that completely evaporate mm. and to be completely relieved from that is, I think, largely what people seek in substances. Yeah. And largely what leads to addiction, but you also get the same benefit in a much healthier, positive, constructive way in flow. You get to you get to lose yourself momentarily and be just given some relief from, you know, what for so many people, including myself, is a constantly, mm. you know, badgering and harassing inner monologue. Mm. Yeah. So I, I from your perspective is I know that you talk a lot about productivity and you're talking to CEOs and they want measurable performance things and does this increase the bottom line and or whatever. Um, Is it safe to say that at the core, like what you described is the quality of human experience is something that drives you and that that's going to inform a lot of the business decisions and the businesses that you spin up? 
I think so. Yeah, okay. I hope so. I hope yeah. so. I was at uh, a conference recently, and Vinod Kozla, mm-hmm. he's one of the most successful yeah. investors in in the, in the whole world, and an incredible technologist. He's been around Silicon Valley since the very beginning with Sun Microsystems. Is this the All In Summit? It was the All In yeah, Summit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So you there? <laughs> we, were, we were hanging out there. We were hanging out there, of course. Um, I don't know if you were there for this talk. But I didn't go to the talks. <laughs> you, you, there you go. Okay, I'll, I'll fill you in now. So that's good. But he just said very concisely, and I really liked the way he said it. He just said with complete conviction, in 25 years' time, the single biggest problem we're going to be faced with is human meaning. Mm. And I think <clears throat> there's tremendous wisdom to that. AI has got me yeah. thinking about that. Yeah. And I think it's it's scary, and maybe there's an end scenario. I was just chatting about this with Evan, who you know, yesterday. Yeah. It is taking away everything in my opinion that isn't human heart and maybe one day it'll get to the essence of the human heart but if you're i realize i'm working on like scripts i'm just having fun it, it puts me into flow to write animated D series and so yeah. i've got several episodes written and there are parts of that project that are filling in gaps like there's parts of the story that i'm just like deeply deeply connected with and there's other parts like eh, if i could farm this out to another writer yeah. i would like to do that yeah. And it seems like one of the things that AI does is you can go to it and be like, how does character A with this motivation going to resolve this issue with character B? And it'll give you seven different options. Right. You pick the one that resonates with you. And increasingly, it seems like AI is taking the monotony, the drudgery, the repetitive stuff and leaving only the work to be done is to find out what resonates with your heart. Like AI yeah. can produce so many different options, but it can't tell you which one speaks to you. Yeah. And it seems like this crisis of human meaning that Vinod described is uh, it's impending, especially in the creative fields, yeah. because every every minuscule part of a creative act that isn't, I don't know, heart centered seems to be yeah. outsourceable. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think, you know, the positive of it and the techno utopian vision that mm-hmm. the likes of Vinod believes in, which I feel fairly convicted of as well is that there is a possible state, and even according to people like Vinod, a likely state, where material abundance will exist to no end. And a lot mm-hmm. of people don't quite, I don't think, understand the fact that there is a world in which every single living being could have every single material need be met mm-hmm. if we are to find and utilize more and more efficient you know resources and utilize resources more and more efficiently there isn't actually an inherent limit in other words to the resources that can be created and produced but if all material needs are met then if you just think about how most individuals today structure and order their consciousness it tends to be around goals specifically mm-hmm. goals are how we order our consciousness Mihai Csikszentmihalyi always talks about the fact that you know without goals consciousness descends into disorder and we end up sort of in this state of entropy. Most goals originate from meeting material needs. And if you see, if you take away material needs mm-hmm. and you make them all met immediately, you need a new way to order consciousness. You need a new set of goals or things or beliefs or rituals to engage in that you know structure consciousness for people at scale and uh, allow people to live with a sense of not just meaning, but even well-being. Mm. You see that already in the difference between, say, like the developing world in the U.S. in terms of suicide rates, which yeah. is when you have to scramble to get food, it doesn't occur to you to end it all. Exactly. But when you've got that, I wonder if it also breaks down by socioeconomic status in the United States. But yeah, when, when that stuff is taken care of, all of a sudden it's, yeah. 
well, maybe I don't want to be. Yep. Maybe I don't want to eat anymore. Exactly. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, you don't have any existential angst about how to self-actualize mm-hmm. if you're trying to survive. Yeah. You know, th- those things only get unlocked as new problems as you move up Maslow's hierarchy of needs, mm-hmm. so to speak. So, Do you have an idea of how that how you might contribute to helping that sort of question get resolved or like? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm not sure. You know, at the moment it's through flow specifically. Uh And I think also through um, sharing useful memes. It's funny, just this morning, actually, I was- uh, (laughs) Just sending people stuff on Instagram constantly. (laughs) (laughs) I I use meme in a a slightly different sense here. Although, yeah, thank you for clarifying that because it doesn't sound like the most effective, scalable way to to solve this stuff. But there's a, it's fresh in my mind because I was just reading a book, funnily enough, by me, I just sent me out this morning called The Evolving Self. Mm -hmm. And he has a chapter called Memes Versus Genes. And he talks about how the two most potent ways in which society is shaped and humans and organisms replicate are genes, mm-hmm. you know, on the one side, which is standard evolution in our biology wanting to replicate itself, but then also memes. Yeah, God is which, watching or, exactly. you know, your exactly. nation first yeah. or a man does X, Y, and Z for yeah. his family. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And memes, you know, as these like nuggets of information, they're almost like little information packets that somehow kind of resonate with the zeitgeist in mm-hmm. a given moment can completely steer and shape history to tremendous degrees. If you think about communism, fascism, yeah. as you said, Christianity. Those are me- those are just memes, mm-hmm. you know, but yet they they shape civilization over thousands of years. It's it's wild the degree to which memes are potent and powerful so long as they're strong ones. And um yeah, I think through the the stuff I've been working on more recently with putting out more content and things like that. Uh, and then working on a book, the desire is to to find useful memes mm-hmm. and, and to try and propagate memes that are useful and that will lead to people thinking things and then doing things that result in higher levels of flourishing. Mm. Um, and then over the long term, it will definitely also be through more business stuff. Cool. I love business stuff as well. So Yeah, me too. I like, I like it being self-sustaining in a way that a business can be as opposed to I don't know, yeah. a nonprofit or yeah, yeah. hobbies are wonderful, but yeah. it, it allows it to grow and yeah. feed itself in a yeah. way. By, it makes its own yeah. rocket fuel. Yes, yes. Yeah. What are you, so I, I've got to deliver on the title of what this is likely to be. So I have to ask <laughs> you, you, and I, I'll give you credit just to get the viewer on with me. I, I'm incredibly impressed with how sharp you are. We had that, well, I'll just tell us a brief story. One of the ways we got put in touch is you put out like sort of a call that you were going to host this creator event. Mm-hmm. You and Max paid for this house in Temecula, got a chef, made it a really cool weekend with a bunch of people that didn't necessarily know each other and said, yeah. if you know somebody, if you know somebody and through a web, I was invited. And the free thing really was a big selling point because I didn't know yeah, yeah. a lot of people. <laughs> but uh, it was great. And I was incredibly impressed with how sharp you were and how dialed in you were on your business decision tree making and the mental models that you have of how to hire and fire all that stuff was just you you crush it so i'd love to just talk broadly i can ask you questions you really uh began to teach me about hiring and firing in a way that i still Mm. haven't fully implemented but i'm Mm. uh learning so what what is cutting edge for you now in terms of where your business is at and maybe we can even work backwards from there yeah yeah it i think people Mm-hmm. And talent are 
the fundamental unit of business. If you think about it, you know, all business is, is people doing things. Mm -hmm. So how capable those people are of doing things makes a big difference to the business, you know, mm -hmm. in very simple terms. Another Vinod Kozla quote, funnily enough, is the team you build is the company you build. Mm -hmm. I think that's very, very true. It took me many years of pain and suffering to figure out a few of these core principles. It took me a while to understand that talent is very nonlinear, meaning what one person is able to do isn't just, you know, 25% more or more significant or more impactful than another, but in certain cases it is utterly incomparable, mm -hmm. utterly incomparable, um, you know, to the order of hundreds of times more. Yeah. And that's, it's just very, very difficult for the mind. You know, our minds have ingrained linearity bias. So we, so we look at two different people and we assume there's like, there could be a marginal difference mm -hmm. in terms of the impact they could make yeah, in your business. Yeah, because they're only this much taller or this much stronger or yeah. this much whatever. Right. Yeah. So the, exactly. So they're only going to be a bit more hardworking or a bit, a bit mm -hmm. smarter and thus will only be able to impact the business in like those incremental mm -hmm. ways. But in reality, that's not the case. You know, the, the, the perfect person for a given role can have dozens of times the positive impact of you know someone who is not right for a given role. And really kind of fully, finally kind of internalizing that and deeply understanding it mm -hmm. helped me to start to prioritize recruitment and talent more and more. Another thing that, that was very helpful actually for- You also demystified it, and I, we should share it yeah. here because it's really good. Because yeah. what, even if I, which I haven't fully accepted that on a like visceral level, but I need to. Yeah. But one of the things that stops me from doing that is hiring and firing is painful. It's yeah. it's just an uncomfortable thing. And it also feels like going to the casino for me. Mm. And you've made it less uncertain through some of the processes that you have, which, yeah. I mean, we can run through. You ran through them at the event, but I think they're really valuable. Yeah, I would yeah. love to hear if yeah, you, yeah. Had like, you had like five things. 100%, yeah. Yeah, I'll run through them. I'll run through them. Just one other, one other point on, I think, another helpful belief to have for business owners before mm -hmm. even going into the specifics is... The idea of um, building the team that will transcend the company. Mm -hmm. So finding a set of people that you will work with forever, likely literally forever until you die or until your career ends, and that will come with you company mm. to company or opportunity to opportunity over multiple decades. And it's a critical... That's a huge shift. shift in mindset because all of a sudden then, if it takes you three years to find someone, it's but you completely have them for worth 30 it. And you got 30 yeah, plus years with yeah. them. You're not... You're not um, constrained down to your assumption about how long the specific business will last, mm -hmm. which then, you know, sets a, you know, you end up using basically the a percentage that you that have timeline. for this quarter or this year. Yeah, exactly. It's like, well, we don't get it done. This year is going to go slower and this guy can come in and we can yeah. plug him in. Yeah, that exactly. makes that's exactly. It's a this very, is like the classic Naval, just extend your timeline yeah. and, it, exactly. and, and everything changes, play long-term games. Everything changes, exactly. Yeah. And all of a sudden it's worth a year, 18 months to get the mm -hmm. perfect person. My writing partner, Joshua, who is just incredible he's become one of my absolute best friends in the world as well does he help with the youtube script he does yeah yeah. they're yeah, good we, yeah we write them all together they're fucking tight man yeah, yeah, they're, they're, they're very good it's been working it's been yeah. working well and it took me like two years to recruit him uh-huh uh, i you know I, I found him randomly through trying to recruit someone else by headhunting i'll describe the process in a second and then i managed to convince someone um that he was working with to get me on a call with him flew out to meet him in portland uh managed over about a month and a half period to get him to join. And then after three months, he left. We weren't ready for him yet and didn't quite have like the, the resources to be able to, to fund his salary. 
We stayed in touch for nine more months, just messaging back and forth, kind of staying in the loop. I kept him in our Slack and then boom, got him on full time. And he's been utterly essential in everything we're doing. I see. I've t- now I'm piecing this together. Uh, not to take us too far away, but yep. you are so patient. I have actually, you're, you're, and weirdly enough, you drive so hard, but <laughs> you purchased consulting.com, yep. which I heard the story, which is like, I asked him at a party and then I followed up a few <laughs> weeks later and then I continued to pester him, not pester him, but like, you're just yeah. there and you are, you allow things to unfold and the no does not become the end of it. It's mm. if this is the right business or the right person or the right thing, you don't put a lot of pressure on it, but it's not, it's not done when the first one doesn't work out. And I see that there's like a real uh, patience in, mm. in how you operate, which is interesting. I appreciate that. Yeah, because I, f- I feel extremely impatient all the time. So it's nice to, nice to hear that. Well, but, then maybe you're, you're cool being impatient for a long yeah, period of time. Maybe, maybe that's what it is. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah, yeah. No, I try, try, and, try and hold the long-term view as much as possible. Yeah. But just on that. So on the recruitment process, we'll, I'll, I'll run through that briefly just because it's a nice tactical thing that I think will be useful for mm-hmm. anyone trying to start a company. The, the first key piece of that is um, getting a really tight job definition. Mm-hmm. A lot of the mistakes people make and that I made at the beginning was creating these unicorn sort of Frankenstein roles. I was actually having a chat with a friend yesterday who is needing to build out a sales team and he wanted someone who could build all the automation infrastructure on HubSpot and then also be a part-time salesperson. And I was just saying to him, those are two different brains. Mm-hmm. You know, so you don't want to put two brains in one role. You need to kind of separate out the, the brains and is, have... Can I ask a question here? Yeah, yeah, it seems like a mistake that I've made, and I think a lot of first-time entrepreneurs is they are often a unique concoction of a bunch of skills that they needed yes. to get from zero to a million. Exactly. And then they look to like, okay, well, I write the YouTube videos and perform them, so I'm going to look for someone to do the YouTube. And it's like yeah. that is... You've learned weirdly a Frankenstein of thing over in the crucible of you know that's just not going to happen Correct. for somebody that you hire. Got yeah, it. exactly. You, you got to view yourself if you're an entrepreneur, you're in that mm-hmm. position as kind of the exception to the rule okay. in a sense. You're, you're the you're the unicorn Frankenstein weird person that has multiple brains somehow. Um, you you can't assume that others also do, mm-hmm. and, and you definitely when you're defining a role in the first place, when you're determining what tasks or responsibilities should or should not go in the role. You definitely want to assume that people have fairly um, parametered brains, if that makes mm. sense, that they're good at talking or that they're good at analyzing or that mm. they're good at you know writing and that they're probably not good at a few of those things. And you want to do that just for your own sake. Again, you can find people who are good at those things, but you want to be really specific and clear in the role definition. The second key thing, which took me a long time to figure out as well, is to hunt rather than to fish. Meaning to this go, is huge. This is yeah, huge. to go to go outbound rather than inbound, and I can't tell you how many times you know we've put out roles and gotten over a thousand inbound applicants. Mm-hmm. You know, go through all of them, spending dozens and dozens of hours whittling them down. You know, we got a top ten, ten out of a thousand. Surely, you know, one of those ten or a few of those ten are going to be amazing, but often zero are because if you th- if you just think about your own life and you think about all the people who are best at a given thing, whether it's the best person you know at marketing, the best person you know at sales, the best person you know at business, the best person you know at YouTube, how many of them are on Indeed? Mm-hmm. Like zero, literally zero. Or usually. looking for a job Or right looking now. for a job. Or, or exactly. would even have the reticular activating system to when yeah. they see your ad, leave the comfortable, cushy yeah. job where they're highly valued yeah. and apply for this thing that has a trial in it yeah. that they don't want to, you know? Exactly, exactly. Basically zero percent, yes. you know? So almost no one. So all of the best talent in the world needs to be hunted as a general rule 
rather than fished. Now, again, this is applying to kind of more complex sort of mm -hmm. senior roles and things like that. If you're, But these are the big ones. But these are yeah. the big ones. These are the big ones, the key ones. And these are also the key ones early on. You want mm -hmm. people who are uh, T-shaped and adaptable early on. So it's really important. T-shaped is... T-shaped is basically having fairly deep expertise in one uh -huh. thing, but having a fairly broad Got range it. of skills at the same time. Uh, and that doesn't contradict with having the job definition be very specific. You want to just focus on the T yeah. in the job definition. The verticality of the exactly. T. Exactly. And yeah. if you find someone amazing at that, usually they're actually quite good at a lot of other things. As okay. well. That tends to be the way. But if you can't find someone. For, for whatever reason, it's very difficult to actually actively search for someone who's good at multiple things. You want to search for someone good at one thing, and then mm. you get that as a bonus. And the, the, the next key kind of part of the process is interviewing to sell rather than to assess. And this, this took me a long time to figure out. I'm probably just crap at interviews. I don't know if that's what it is. <laughs> I also think that interviews are fundamentally flawed in many ways in that you're assessing someone's ability to talk and ask, answer questions rather than to actually do what their role is. So in the interview process, because you've hunted this person down and they're you know um, likely very in demand, you want to actually sell them and enroll them on the vision of working with you, the vision for the company, rather than wasting that time with them by trying to assess them. You if they're good. Of, you've already decided exactly. that they're good because you track them right. down. Yeah. And one thing that I will say is yeah. uh, that you brought up, which is hunting versus fishing, outbound versus inbound. You talked about hunting grounds at the thing that we were on. So when yeah. you were looking for writers, you went to Twitter and Substack Correct. specifically. Yeah. And it's there are particular places that you yeah. will begin to look for these individuals. And depending on the role, you got to go to that place to find them and it's exactly. not it's just not Substack for everybody or youtube for yeah. everybody yep exactly exactly you or linkedin to, for everybody right yeah. exactly you want to figure out as you said what are the best hunting grounds mm -hmm. for a marketer if you're trying to find a marketer mm -hmm. or a chief sales officer or a coo if you're trying mm -hmm. to find a coo usually people with skill sets congregate in certain hunting grounds and those mm -hmm. are very rich hunting grounds from which yeah. you can you can pull people then the, the final thing so once you've interviewed to sell rather than assess meaning you've really got them hyped up on joining you and you've used the interview in that time what I do, and this is still important because even though you're assuming they're good, you, you need to check, is you want to um, have them do some kind of a discovery project or a discovery period, and that replaces the interview. That is the one way of assessing them. You have them do you know, a half day or a week, or in some cases, if it's a big role, like a COO, a month. These are paid, unpaid, or uh, they can be they can be either. Often, okay. often we'll do them paid. Sometimes, paradoxically, for the really big roles, we'll actually do them unpaid because mm. the person's a multiple. They don't care, you know. If, yeah. Like the person's a multiple. And they actually just want to. They actually want a good fit, and they're like, exactly. well, let's not put pressure on this with money. Yeah. Let's just see if this is exactly. Yeah. They, they don't need to finagle about yeah. you know a thousand bucks for whatever mm. the day's work. So yeah, so they're chill about it. And then that that's that's the thing though that really gives you the clear sense as to that gives you the signal and the noise as to whether they are as strong as you mm. think they are and as strong as they seem because you're actually having you're simulating on the job functions in advance of having to make the big commitment to bring them onto the team. And for me that just completely changed the game. We went from having to constantly churn people out and just having constant people issues mm. to everyone 100% of the people on the team now being an absolute joy. Amazing. Work with, so. Amazing. Have yeah. you out? Have you been able to outsource to HR that hiring process? Or are you still deeply involved in it at your? Um, I'm. I'm definitely deeply involved in certain higher level roles. We're hiring mm -hmm. a president at the moment, for example. So I'm heavily involved in that. But then yeah. we have someone who runs recruitment as well and uses a similar philosophy outside of me. And this is. I mean, it, all of these phrases that I've heard are like they're making more sense. Which is like A players can hire A players. They're not necessarily yeah. going to, but you hire a B player. They will hire a C player. Exactly. Like that is that yeah. is what happens. The degradation through the levels of hiring yeah. is guaranteed. Yeah. And uh, 
there was another thing that you said, which it was something of the phrase about if it's not a hell yes or if it's not a no or if, it, if there's uncertainty, it's certain. I think that was what it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If yeah, you're yeah. not certain, it's If there's it's doubt, certain. there's no yeah. doubt. If there's yeah, doubt, yeah, there's yeah, no yeah. doubt. Yeah, that comes from Frank Slootman. By the way, it's a really good example of intuition being made practical because uh-huh. fundamentally the, the sense of doubt is an intuitive signal Yeah, that you're not actually often isn't objective. You know, it's just, you just, you just know. You yeah. just know. And, but most people will, will, as you were kind of saying earlier, deprioritize that intuitive signal yeah. and then use things that are easier to grasp at from a kind of a cognitive or rational perspective. Like, oh, but their resume or, mm. but I just spent three months I want it to, for me, it was always, I want this to work so badly. Yeah, Let's try to, again. I exactly. really want this to work. Yeah. I really, like, this, this was too much of a pain. I never want to do this again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, that actually, it's, it, there's an interesting uh, mental model that I use for that that's been very helpful in business, which... I call it the cognitive bias high, and mm-hmm. it's the high that you get when you make a decision that flies in the face of the cognitive biases that have been evolutionarily wired into your mm. thinking patterns and your consciousness. So a simple example would be sunk cost bias in that yeah. case. I just invested three months trying to get this yeah. person on board. I so badly want it to work. 99.9% of humans can't overcome the sunk cost fallacy cognitive bias and mm-hmm. thus they they continue with the person because the pain mm. of going against their cognitive bias is just too much to overcome mm-hmm. when you make a decision that you know even though it's so painful goes against the cognitive bias and is the right decision like in that case you know immediately wrapping up with that individual you get this what i call like this cognitive bias high you get this oh my god this feeling of i managed to rise above my mm. you know evolutionary yeah, yeah. coded patterning and actually kind of become the puppet master for a moment rather than just being puppeteered around. I felt it. it, There's an opening that occurs because the cognitive bias is this constricting, limiting thing that focuses your consciousness on the smallest thing. And when you open up past that, it's like, oh, I could hunt all of these places. There's like the possibility for how good this could be begins to reassert itself in your awareness. And you're like, oh, I don't have to settle. Yeah. Like, yeah. like I was terrified that I did and I was just taking what, yeah, that's, right. that's a very interesting. Yeah. And you also, you, you start to feel, and it's, it can be a sad thing as well, because you start to feel more acutely and specifically why the vast majority of people don't make good decisions. Mm. And it's, it's kind of a sad thing because not making good decisions is what leads to many people not getting the outcomes they want to get in their lives. But it's so hard to overcome these cognitive biases that have been patterned into us for the sake of our survival. Another simple example is linearity bias, which we, we talked a little bit about earlier, which is just the difficulty we have in being able to differentiate um, between two things. Things seem similar, but often things are wildly disproportionate. And the best entrepreneurs and CEOs in the world, like Steve Jobs, a classic example yep. of this, he constantly was able to focus so ruthlessly on one thing in a way that was him overcoming linearity bias. You know, a, a far more average executive would say, oh, let's put a little bit of stock in the iPhone and let's mm-hmm. put a little bit of mm-hmm. stock in this other thing and let's put a few resources on this other thing and a few on this other thing. And Jobs was able to know that, you know, the iPhone is the one thing that Apple is literally going to build, you know, trillion dollars in enterprise value off the back of over the coming decade. And rather than being subject to linearity bias, he could, he could fight that and go mm-hmm. all in on that one thing, knowing how disproportionately impactful it is. So. Sure. And it's interesting because who hasn't heard the 80-20 rule? But yeah. of the people that can implement that consistently in their life and understand yeah. that some things have exponential pay, others don't. And yeah. 
that is a far, a far smaller number of people than have heard it because the biases right. are just so strong. Exactly, yeah, and that's a great point about the 80-20 rule. The reason it's tough is because it goes against linearity bias. Mm. Yeah, it's not because you haven't heard of it. It's just because yeah. it's like, yeah, exactly. it feels uncomfortable. It goes against your physiology, your hardwiring. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So. so that's people, which I totally get, are massive. Is there something that you're, or related to people or some other domain that is cutting edge for you for what you're having to develop in business? I mentioned earlier, I should say it on the camera. I'm really interested in the character traits and those personal biases that need to be overcome in order to succeed mm. at the various stages uh, in business. If I look back at the beginning, it's I'm afraid of being seen. I don't want to, you know, post my stuff on YouTube or anything. And you get past that. And then you get to the next stage. It's I got to get past the fact that I think I should do everything, whatever it is. Yeah. I'm curious what what's coming up for you now if, if you are in the process of, of moving through some of those things. Right now, what's coming up for me, I'm not sure how useful this will be to people, but I'll kind of share. I'll share it anyway. I have been hitting into ceilings with my own leadership mm-hmm. which has been actually very frustrating and challenging i've i have felt like a kind of crappy leader to be mm. honest in certain ways what, what i what i've realized about myself although i think this applies to everyone to a greater degree than they think is that when i become subject to dispersion dispersion being going a mile wide and an inch deep and being spread across multiple distinct projects or pursuits. Mm-hmm. Pursuits. When I'm subject to dispersion, I um, I go from being extremely effective when singularly focused to being below average level of effectiveness. Well, well that is not literally true. I, I think am positive. It, I, I, it, it, I am, it definitely feels literally true. I know it so. feels literally true, but I will not allow that to stand as a literal statement. But please continue. I accept your feeling. <laughs> I'm flattered. It definitely feels that way. Below average. Yeah. Well, this is one of the, this is one, dispersion, I think, is one of the ultimate success just killers. It's interesting. You know, procrastination is, um, the dilemma that emerges when you really want to do something, it's it's high motivation plus the inability to act. People often think it's a lack of motivation, but the pain of procrastination mm. is I want to do this thing, but I yeah. fucking can't do it, yeah. um, which is paradoxical to what most people think. And that often is is a big, big obstacle to people getting in the game in the first place, to starting the business, to taking the new role, to doing whatever it is. But I think what happens usually a few years in, once you've kind of gotten past procrastination and you've kind of got the Gary V mentality of being able to execute and Just hustle it, all that yeah. stuff down... What, then what kills you is dispersion. Mm-hmm. That's sort of the second big obstacle, I think, to, to peak performance and success. And dispersion is just the inability to resist shiny, other objects, th- shiny yeah. objects and other things that are not the main thing. Mm. And uh, the, the degree, I, I just, I, I had been very conscious of the risk of dispersion the entire way with the business. You know, we, we, one of the reasons we grew so fast as well was because of this extreme focus we had. We, we sold one product yep. through one channel yep. for two years, uh, which is way, way, all the way till the point that it was literally an eight-figure business. And uh, I, I was co- constantly seeing examples of people splintering out focus and just doing lots of things, you know, in an average fashion and not gaining any traction and kind of, mm-hmm. again, going a mile wide and an inch deep. And then it got me. It mm, got me. It, it snuck in through the back door. Yeah. This dispersion in a way that I couldn't, I did not see coming. And, this, uh, that's so fascinating because last time we talked, I was like, oh, wow, Reen's got his hand in a lot of pots. Well, there you go. Yeah. There you go. Exactly. Exactly. And and the hand is in a lot of pots. The question is like, is the hand doing anything useful in those mm. in those pots? 
Um, and so what, what I, the, the, for me, the big learning, and it relates to leadership as well, because I'm a crap leader if I'm dispersed. I'm just not a good leader if I'm dispersed. I think most people are not good leaders if they're dispersed. You're like a, you know, absentee landlord kind of mm. thing. But um, for me, the big lesson has been the degree to which dispersion is insidious, how, you know, you can, you can stay focused on being focused, but the thing that will unfocus you is never the thing you think it will be. It always kind of creeps up on you through some other means. Like, you know, in a sense, a good example for me is consulting.com. So it's these other businesses that you're like, oh, that's a great opportunity. Let me, I've been noticing this. Yeah, it's like you've got energy, right? Yeah. You're, you're this bucket and you're like, it's just a little leak. Like I could just put a little yeah. bit over here. I'll spin it up real yeah. quick. It'll run its, and that is that is a tricky yeah. thing to do exactly. and, and have go the way that you imagine it might. Yeah, exactly. There's a few things to it. I think number one is, there's the shiny object you think will distract you mm-hmm. is not the shiny object that will actually distract you usually. Interesting. Well, yeah. let's just also context. Consulting.com was, if you guys were on YouTube a couple of years ago, Sam Ovens was in all of your ads, uh, inviting yeah. you to his friendly <laughs> webinar. <laughs> <laughs> so Sam good. was at, for, for the people watching, <laughs> Sam was at the event and was a fucking legend. Oh my Total God. legend. Irian, where's the coffee? It was so good. <laughs> I had an incredible hot tub experience with Sam that, yeah, I, he's a, you know, epic, I'll epic have to guy, share another Sam. time. Sam, by the way, is an unbelievable entrepreneur yeah. and one of the best examples. And at not doing this. Exactly. exactly. He sold you his dispersion. That, exactly. That mofo. Exactly. And you asked for it. I now I realize. So I know. Sam, he he's had a so multi-million dollar how to start an internet business business. I mean, yeah. it, it, this is huge. And his yeah. was good and people liked really it. Really good. It was like the biggest one in the whole space. Yeah. Crushed it. My friends yeah. loved it. And, uh, Gosh, he's like, no, this isn't the main thing. I'm going to do school. I'm going to compete with Facebook. Yeah. And you're like, let me pick that smaller thing up for you at a discount. Yeah. And he's like, sure. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what now? What do you do now? To get yeah, it's a good question. You know, I think well, just to your to your other point um, around kind of putting a little bit of attention on things. That's just been another lesson: is that there's Mm. no such thing as a half hour here or there. Mm. At least not for me, and at least not for certain kinds of you know brains and minds that are problem solving obsessed. I think particularly for entrepreneurs, that's the irony actually, I think is that it's, yeah. this is where I, I wrote all of my scripts. My best stuff was not in front of the keyboard. Right. It was walking around, exactly. laying around, taking a shower. It was, and then I just transcribed them when I was working. This is yeah. something I didn't appreciate about myself was how relentlessly my brain worked. And I yeah. actually held people to a much lower standard of hours worked because I thought I only worked a few hours. Right. And right. I realized, holy shit, I'm working all day, every yeah. day on this. Exactly, exactly. There's, there's actually, there's a useful flow model on this. There's two networks in the brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, well, there's much more than that, but two networks that are relevant to this. The task positive network, which is active when you're fully focused on a task. Mm-hmm. And then there's the default mode network or the imagination network that engages when you are disengaged in a mm-hmm. specific task. And all of productivity advice, every single thing that we learn or hear about with respect to productivity and performance is focused on task positive network productivity, which is mm-hmm. sitting down to actually do a thing. Yep. And no one talks about the kind of productivity that you're talking about, which is default mode network productivity, which is active when you're disengaged. And the absolutely just insidious killer thing about dispersion and the reason that there's no such thing as a half hour here or there or just a little bit of a side hustle that you only do on a mm-hmm. you know Friday morning is that it tanks your rumination. Ooh. Tanks your default mode network productivity, which is active for far more of a total percentage of your week, you know, than your task positive network 
productivity, like mm-hmm. you're mentioning. You know, you're you're walking around and thinking for a way higher percentage of your waking hours than you're sitting down writing scripts. Yeah. But as soon as you disperse across projects, your your mind is like you know, uh, an animal that just has nothing to chase. It's just kind of like, doesn't know which ball to run after. And so Mm. it ruminates on nothing but triviality. You end up thinking about, you know, some stupid social interaction that you had a week before rather than thinking about the scripts and how you could refine that concept and make it better because there's nothing for your consciousness to focus on, locate onto. So that's definitely been been a real challenge with the dispersion that I've, inc- I've, I've experienced recently. So. What what are you going to do? Because I because last time we talked, this is the vision was I want to own uh, like a bunch of different education companies and kind of have a lot of different answers on across a lot of different domains in companies that I own. And you're like, well, I've got the flow thing. I've got the money thing now. Yeah. What, how has that shifted and changed? Um, I think, well, I think it's definitely that vision. I still definitely hold and it's definitely possible to do that vision in a way that isn't dispersed. Okay. I think, you know, like in other words, you know, there are, um, there are business models that the explicit and singular goal of that business model is to aggregate multiple models. Mm. You're singularly focused on that, you know, in a sense, so long as you're operating at the right level, you are not necessarily by default dispersed. But that's high enough up. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But to answer the question more specifically, I, at the moment, it's all on flow. I really am extremely passionate about this body of work on, on flow and on how to access flow state consistently in the workplace. And that's, that's kind of what I'm obsessed about, along with Flow Research cool. Collective. I think at Flow Research Collective, we have the opportunity to be the world's leading professional training and leadership development company. The, <clears throat> the whole professional training space is an interesting one because the, the huge deficit that exists in the modern education system sets up this massive gap for how to actually, you know, work effectively, how to lead effectively, how to communicate effectively, how to do all of these things, which creates so, this So real vacuum. quick, before we get too deep yeah, in, the, yeah. does that mean that you're not going to put as much time, effort, energy into consulting.com, you will like any other projects? You're just sort of with for plugging now. some of those holes? Okay. Yeah, exactly. So there's a, there's a mentor of mine who was the president of Kajabi, just this amazing guy. I was actually chatting to him this morning, Jonathan Kronstad, and he gave me this phrase, which has been unbelievably helpful for mitigating dispersion, which is strategic neglect. Mm. And D- yes, yep. So good. And as soon as I heard that, I was like, oh, I just, I, I, someone, neglect is not enough. You, it needs to sound like a real thing. <laughs> strategic neglect. Strategic neglect. And then all of a sudden I feel good about doing it. But yes, so consulting.com is in the strategic neglect Got it. bucket. And Flow Research Collective and the, the mission on flow is in the you know singular focus bucket. Mm, understand. And I, and I think, by the way, as a side note, I think that's a good model for people is to only have two buckets. There's the one thing you're focused on and then there's the strategic neglect bucket. Yeah. And ideally you differentiate between those as aggressively as possible and singularly focus on this and then mm. keep that, keep all that stuff fully in the strategic neglect bucket mm-hmm. rather than kind of again, dispersing focus across multiple things. So. Mm-hmm. Well, you still live a very busy life. You're very social. So there's also another bucket, which is just like, I don't know, this doesn't have to pay me back. I just love it. <laughs> you know, like yeah. parties with friends or you went to Burning Man or there's other stuff. Like, I know you work very hard, but it seems like you also have a very active social calendar. So I'm just trying to understand that because it's there's the strategic neglect project, which is your consulting. There's the fully focused. And then there's also like, hanging out with buds and doing other stuff, which it seems like yeah. you do a fair amount of. Yeah, yeah, I'm extremely extroverted. Mm-hmm. And a friend of mine said to me recently this nice pithy quote, which is uh, community is recovery, which I thought mm-hmm. was a really nice way to describe it. Okay. And with that, to me, in my mind, that points to the importance of belonging. 
Okay. I think if, if you synthesize all the positive psychology research down that's happened since it was founded in the 90s, there's really two words that sum it all up, which are purpose and belonging. Mm-hmm. All happiness and flourishing for humans essentially comes from those two things. Mm. Feeling love and belonging to people you care about and getting to experience that with frequency and regularity and then having a purpose in the world. That's mm. basically it when it comes to uh, things that bring humans joy. And for me, the belonging bucket is one that I've struggled with because of the tendency and the temptation to kind of go the lone wolf, you know, route constantly and just work late nights and purpose. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. That's the thing is purpose can cannibalize belonging very easily. Masculine feminine, you know, that's, yeah. it's like the core drive. Which yeah, yeah is, it's a good, it's a good point. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that actually. It's a nice way to describe it, but yeah. But exactly, the purpose can cannibalize belonging, mm-hmm. but belonging, if done properly. And belonging can cannibalize purpose. If the most yeah. important thing is fitting in, yeah. you can lose yourself and your right. drive. And I, I right. think these are like, not that men and women are the only ones who have this, but this is the masculine and the feminine. They can they can both go astray if, yeah. they, if they lean into one without finding the other. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a great point that mm-hmm. exactly belonging of the wrong kind mm-hmm. can, can massively cannibalize purpose. Belonging of the right kind, I think, is for me at least, the ultimate fuel for purpose. Yes. So I make sure- They they can be synergistic. They can be synergistic. Yeah. Exactly. They can compound off each other beautifully. And historically, I've been too lone wolf, Mm. uh, especially for being so extroverted. And so I really try and make sure I prioritize the healthy kind of belonging and connection with with people and in community and things like Mm -hmm. that. What does that look like for you? Because the event that you threw, I would love to know, it's now been a couple months. It might not have been worth the money. Maybe it was. I don't know. But- (laughs) Yeah, how do you think about that? You created opportunities for serendipity and to get to know a bunch of people. Yeah. You you hosted a huge party for which you got a cease and desist letter <laughs> <laughs> and had uh, hundreds of people. And, and it was, you guys put a ton of money into the theme and the house and a cacao ceremony. And it was incredible. I haven't been to a party like that. I appreciate it. So yeah, just, uh, well, I forget the question there, but how yeah. how are these things working for you? Because you seem to, one of the pieces of advice I give on Charisma on Command is to be the hub. Like you can try to be the yeah. spoke friend and be like, hey, what are we doing tonight? Hey, where right, are we going? Right, it's like, right. that's very fucking anxiety inducing. Yeah, and yeah. you're, when you're the hub, it's like, we're going to Temecula and we're inviting all these people or we're going to a party that's going to have to be yeah. a cow ceremony. I'm curious how that's worked out for you, especially since you've invested a tremendous amount of money in doing it at a high level. Yeah, no, I appreciate the question. I think it, uh, the, the reason I prioritize it is, one of the reasons I prioritize it is I know how important it is for me to be happy, actually, and to perform mm-hmm. well also. When I was in my late teens, I was big into quantified self, and tracking everything. Yep. I still do a lot of yeah, tracking yeah, yeah. and things like that. But <laughs> one of the things I would track was actually socializing. Uh, and I realized that um, I think it was 72 hours without having socialized in a specific way with a group where it feels like community, my procrastination and all habits would just fall through the floor. Mm-hmm. Like my performance would just go off a cliff. And there's a part of me that starts to feel like, wait a second, if if there's no one else or I don't feel that there's anyone else that I'm connected to, then why why work? Mm-hmm. What, like all, everything I would be working on would just immediately, all the meaning would be evaporated from mm-hmm. it and my drive would just go, flat and kind of flaccid very very quickly so that's one of the reasons i really prioritize it is it it, i find it extremely energizing and fulfilling and it imbues everything and all the hard work for me at least personally being extroverted and whatnot 
with a tremendous amount of meaning. And I ended up, uh, ended up getting a girlfriend out of that, out of that party as <laughs> right? well. So there you go. <laughs> Incredible. Incredible. Yeah. I, there's you, I haven't done it yet. No, I did. We had this thing. Yeah. I was totally inspired yeah, yeah. by you. Um, yeah, yeah. we had people over the amount of effort money that you took upon yourself. You didn't ask for anybody to chip in. That was, in, that was inspiring. I was like, oh, this is what it means to like really create a place mm. and a center and, and invite people into it and create positive I, I just need to make it more recurring because we had we had Matthew Hussey come we had a bunch of yeah, other yeah. YouTubers here Sorry like that one, it would have been great Go dude he was he was yeah. wonderful to connect with yeah, yeah. like we'll have him on the pod nice. I don't know sometime in the future but um yeah I, I just need to make that more regular because yeah. that was that was cool and worth it and over time that I can't imagine that not compounding exactly exactly I think it is <clears throat> it is absolutely astounding the degree to which if you chart out your whole life over the last like decade or 15 years or mm -hmm. whatever it is, depending on what age you are, and you look at every inflection moment that resulted in some significant positive thing happening, mm -hmm. almost all the time, at least for me, it has been related to a serendipitous interaction with another human being. So if you simply increase the quantity of those, yep. you know, you have more positive inflections, the whole trajectory of life ends up going upward more steeply. And it seems like if you build those serendipity events around a purpose. So for me, it was, I'm going to teach a course on how to talk to women in yeah. New York City. It was where I met yeah, all yeah. of my friends for the next years. I'm yeah. going to start Charisma on Command. That's where all of my serendipity has come from. And right. now it's, I want to do a sound bath and breath work and invite the people yeah. that are in my extended network to do that thing. You wanted to have a YouTube. It's it's when your purpose drives the yes. invitation to belonging. At yeah, least yeah. I'll, I'll say it seems like that's a very good recipe. Yeah, I think you're right about that. That's yeah. a, it's a beautiful marriage there yeah. between intersecting purpose and belonging as well. Mm -hmm. And it results in you instantly having a tremendous amount of common ground yeah. with with everyone. Funnily enough, the reason Stephen wanted to use the word collective in our name mm. was because collective refers to not just a community, but a community with a shared goal, which goes to your point there. Have you... Uh this is making me realize one of the things that I loved at first and has an advantages was, oh, it's an online business and we're going to travel and I won't have to go to an office anymore, which was I hated going to the office when I worked as a consultant. Yeah. And I'm realizing that one of the things that happened was, one, I had the advantage of traveling with six other dudes, so I still had community. But I got disconnected from the community of the work that I was doing. I wasn't encountering fans as much. I wasn't seeing employees on a day-to-day -day basis. And the videos while some of them would continually interest me in a topic, I, the outcomes in the world were not resonating with me. Yeah. I tried the strategy of, you know, when there's nice emails, forward them to me. And there were too many to read. And I was like, okay, I'll read three a week. But it just didn't, it didn't land. And I'm wondering, I guess what I'm speaking aloud is I need a place, I think. Yeah. Uh, when, I, when I close my eyes and think what I have, I want a center. I yeah, want like yeah, a yeah. healing center with psychedelics yeah. and stuff. And I want to spend time there. I'm yeah. curious if you want that or have that or driving towards that what do you think about a physical location where the people who are working on a project come together I, yeah i think it is absolutely um game changing unquestionably mm -hmm. if you if you do all you have to do is look you know mm -hmm. all you have to do is look at all of the biggest bursts of creativity and innovation and success mm -hmm. and even the current teams that are doing the best at things yeah. like youtube like mr beast they're, they're all in person as a general rule mm -hmm. and the digital nomad thing i personally think is grossly overrated yep i did it also for a fairly significant period of time and personally my philosophy is to try and have every part of life compound so that it's on an exponential curve whether it's um you know finances 
business, network, health, but being centered in one specific location, like we are here, for example, in LA, mm. and then allowing the community, the network, all the disparate links, all of those things to compound and grow and grow and grow is, for me at least, has been absolutely incomparable to resetting every two months or three yeah, months. Yeah, yeah, as a nomad thing. Back to zero, back to zero. It's like yeah. eradicating all your compound interest every three months for yeah. a little bit of novelty, you know, uh, which to me has, is just so much less fulfilling. My, my dad actually, on a call to him, randomly put it nicely, which was that he, he said something along the lines of, it's tough to jump high on a moving boat, which is a good way to describe it. You know, if yeah. you've ever been on like a, a kayak or something like that and you try and jump up on it, mm -hmm. the thing is just moving underneath you. And it's, you know, it's, it's very true, I think, that it's another analogy for it is it's difficult to grow a big tree without deep roots. Yeah. Know? So I really think being in a specific place and then even better, like you're suggesting, having, having a center of some kind mm -hmm. makes a big difference. Yeah. Interesting. So you don't have a physical workspace, though, for your flow research? The house is as close to it as, yeah. So well, for I, the team, have, I mean, like, uh, that is not, involved. No, in not for the team. We yeah. don't have one for the team. I use the house quite a lot. Yeah. Um, with team members. So people will come through a lot and I have a, a big office and a podcast studio Got and it. stuff like that there, which is really nice. So that's kind of like the closest thing to a base. But no, we do not have a physical center. Mm. But at some point, at some point, that will definitely be a thing. I'm sure. Mm. You are studying neurophilosophy right now? So I, I did that as my undergrad. Okay. Yeah. And now I'm doing, I'm doing a PhD in philosophy on a part of the dispersion, by the way. <laughs> um, Doing a PhD. Yeah, God, I was like, okay, this is making me... The first time we talked, you're like, I bought this business, I'm studying for my PhD, I've got thesis papers, I'm running this business. Yeah. So yeah, that's what so I you're mean writing, you're writing philosophy papers. I'm writing philosophy papers oh my by, goodness. by morning and uh, running the business by day and then trying to get some sleep by night. Is that worth not finishing? I, I, oh God, it's Why do you need a piece of paper? Let me, let me challenge you. Yeah, yeah, do, please. Okay. Yeah. The joy of philosophy is not in the PhD. The yep. joy of philosophy is in the richness that the ideas bring into your life. Yep. And to complete something for a piece of paper, for three letters behind your name, when you already are who you are at age 27, seems silly to me. Now, if you love the coursework, yeah. continue. Yeah. But for, for a PhD, for the credibility, which you already have out the wazoo... Yeah, yeah, no, it's a good, it's a good question. I mean, I've had to wrestle with: is it an intrinsic motivation mm -hmm. or is it an extrinsic motivation? Like the letters that I'm doing it for, the, the main motivation, which is kind of a weird, obscure motivation to do a PhD, is I actually want to do it as a flow challenge, basically, mm -hmm. as a peak performance challenge for myself. As we're crafting all the content for Flow Research Collective on Flow, I want to challenge myself to practice what we preach and apply it to the most extreme possible degree. And I know that if I apply the stuff that we endorse and share and teach to an extreme degree, I can do it while doing everything else. So it's kind of almost like a sport is how I'm, or it's almost like doing a tough mutter. That's mm -hmm. almost the way I'm thinking about it. It gives me this opportunity to apply what we teach to an extreme degree, which then also helps me refine through my own lived experience, what works and what doesn't work. Yeah, totally. No, That's, you have to like you have to go do the thing yeah, that exactly. you're teaching, and exactly. it has to work in exactly. your life. So to see if I can do a PhD on the side, very much so on the side, in two years rather than six, is kind of like a fun challenge to sure. apply what we teach. And then the other side of it is it's actually on, believe it or not, it's on flow and meaning. Okay. Which I am extremely intrinsically motivated by as a, as a subject area, and the way I think about, it, I did a master's in neuroscience as well before this, and actually did an MBA as well, but. I found that with those two and the undergrad, the nice thing about academia is it's basically like a accountability. 
programmed. Yeah, and, no, it'll make learn. you make you read yeah, these exactly. fucking challenging philosophers yeah. and and digest it. Yeah, and I just I just know that I just wouldn't do it otherwise. Of course, it's the reality, you know. So so from that perspective, at the moment, I'm rationalizing at least mm -hmm. that it's worth it. But we'll see. Let me ask another question then. Um, I totally agree that you should set up in your business and in your life times for you to walk the walk of what you teach. Yeah. And if you don't, why, like if it doesn't work yes. for you yeah, and exactly. now you've become the business coach teaching people how yeah. to run a business, what are you right. doing? Right. If you had a client and they told you about a shape of their life that looked kind of like yours mm. and you were helping them get into flow, do you encourage them to continue with this PhD program in their life? Or do you tell them the higher order thing that I'm here to teach you is about dispersion? Because you said that the thing that you are on the cutting edge of right <laughs> you now, me. you got me, Charlie. You said the Damn thing it. that you're on the cutting edge of <laughs> that you haven't fully integrated is yeah, your yeah. inability to oh. shut shit down. Painful. Painful. <laughs> you don't have to answer. The PhD is done. <laughs> no. I'm gonna rip it up when I get home. <laughs> you don't have to. You don't have to. No, I think I think I would. Pro I'll tell you what I think I'd say. Sure. Uh, which I maybe should apply this to myself. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, I should apply this to myself is I would say, uh, I would say at least sequence it. You know, if you do want to do it, mm -hmm. do it, but at least sequence it. Yeah. There's an interesting um, friend of mine, a guy called Dr. Alan Bernard. He bought uh, all of the IP or inherited all of the IP from the book, The Goal, which is a really fascinating book on um, management theory and mm -hmm. how factories can increase efficiency as much as possible. This guy, Dr. Elijah Goldrath wrote it and the theory of constraints was invented by him. But one of the principles of, of um, running these efficient factories is actually the sooner you start, the later you finish, which again goes back to cognitive biases and is very mm. paradoxical. So in other words, the sooner you start, meaning the sooner you start and run multiple things in parallel, oh, the later, the later, later, you the finish later thing. thing finishes, yes. Yeah, and it's very, very difficult yeah. for us to believe that. Very, very Got difficult. It. And so that, that principle of the sooner you start, the later you finish, I should probably apply and just finish it later and, fin and Strategic then start neglect. it later and finish it so, sooner, yeah. So here's, I'll tell you my perspective on this. You own and you feel that you own consulting.com and you feel a degree of comfort in putting that in the strategic neglect thing. Yeah. You feel that this PhD program has started and is out of your control and it just runs and they tell you the paper. You haven't taken full ownership yeah, over yeah. it. And yeah. it seems like you're allowing them to dictate that this is not going in the strategic neglect yeah. bucket. When yeah. if you were to realize who you are, this is my opinion, you're like, dude, I'll fucking tell you when I'm going to get this PhD. <laughs> I'm going to get, the, look at you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'll get the PhD when it is time for me to get the PhD. When I have done what I need to do at the Flow Research Collective, when I've done what I need to do at consulting.com, and then I will not do this in two years, I will do this in one year. Yeah. And I will be better at it, and I will sleep on it, and think of it, and breathe it. Yeah. So... Yeah, it's yeah. I'm not going to make you, but I will tell you clearly from my perspective, right energetically, move. intuitively, the right move. Yeah. everything that we've said, yeah. I don't know enough and I would want to hear more, but that's my, my intuition. It's is, very well intuitive. I'm actually, I'm impressed that you picked up on that because we haven't even talked I think about this it in is detail, a, so. I think this is a gift of mine and I'm not saying that you need to follow it, but it's something that I've struggled with is I can, when I'm in interaction, I can see what I can see the way that someone's relationship isn't working. I can see the thing that they're hiding from themselves. And I haven't been able to keep my fucking mouth shut yeah, because yeah. I can push people way too hard. And it's something that I'm That's working good. on is, like is containing it in, <laughs> as an invitation as opposed to, do you see how this is out of alignment? This yeah, is out of yeah. alignment. This is, it's, yeah. uh, my work is to like offer that as an invitation and then yeah. get the hell out of the way. I like that. <laughs> it's, good. it's very well intuitive. It's good advice. And funnily enough, me and Max have this rule where we, 
insist on giving each other fully unsolicited feedback <laughs> and advice at, an, at any moment at any right moment one. it could so, strike yeah, well yeah. dude i would i don't have to do it now I, I fucking want it man i would love to sit in in the grill and just yeah, have yeah, you have just join. tear apart my hiring <laughs> un, discomfort and my uh strategic laziness which is actually nervousness or whatever <laughs> i'm sure you could i'm sure you'd find it yeah it'd be fun to do that at some point beautiful man yeah. well it's it's twelve ten now we'll uh wrap it up we haven't talked a ton about flow on purpose, not because it's not interesting, but because yep. you're like, I'm going to do a ton of flow stuff later and you've already yeah, yeah. got it on your YouTube channel. So yep. I'll say people can check you out, re-endorse on YouTube. You've very quickly just, I think your first video has like several hundred thousand views on flow, right? Yeah. I think it's got over a million now. Over a million now. Yeah. 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 Incredible. Like you, you jumped in, applied all the stuff that you've learned about learning that you took from that thing already at the uh, YouTube thing that you had learned and yeah. just jumped into the YouTube scene in a way that is really, really impressive. So people can check that out if they're interested in flow, productivity, where else and what else would you uh, like people to check out of yours? Yeah, I think for now, the, the YouTube channel is the best place. And then Flow Research Collective, if anyone wants to learn more as well, is a great, great place to check out. Um, if anyone wants a tactical breakdown of a number of different business tools actually there's a free uh download you can get at consulting.com which uh breaks down the hiring thing that we talked about actually mm -hmm. so it's another option for folks so yeah and i i haven't gone through the course but i do know the people that took the same up and stuff i have friends yeah, that yeah, very yeah. much like that so yeah cool Super. thanks so much Dude, charlie so glad you made it Man, out so appreciate it beautiful thanks for having me on peace everybody <laughs>